conversations we had um, over the course of um, well, most of the last year, um, where we brought American and Russian specialists on um, actually a variety of security, non-proliferation, um, conflict-related topics to meet, um, to meet in two workshops and write some papers to talk about crisis stability. So we're going to talk through both how we conceptualize this project and its results. Um, I'm going to provide the briefing, but we've got um, two great uh, folks here to provide additional insights and commentary. Um, Sharon Scosoni uh, is a research professor at the Elliott School of International Affairs at George Washington University. She actually was the original lead here at CSIS for this project, and she is um, one of America's top nonproliferation specialists, having uh, played roles in the government, at the State Department, Arms Control and Disarmament Agency, and the Congressional Research Service. She's also worked at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, as well as here at CSIS. Um, and then um, the other, on the other side of the podium is Andrei Bakletsky. Andrei is a consultant at the Peer Center, uh, which is a think tank uh, in Moscow that focuses on strategic and um, proliferation and arms control related issues, and a research fellow at the Center for Global Trends and International Organizations of the Diplomatic Academy of the Russian Foreign Ministry. Uh, and um, Andrei has also been uh, writing a great deal on these topics and is going to present a Russian viewpoint uh, as a Russian, since this was a bilateral um, conversation, it seemed foolish to just put Americans on the stage to report out. Let's see if I can make this clicker work. Here we go. Um, so I always like to start with some of the bottom lines um, of what, what is it we learned. And one of the kind of strong takeaways that we came away from our conversations with was that um, we weren't sure that our leadership was all that interested in managing risk. Um, or rather, we felt that our leadership was very confident that they could manage risk, so they didn't need to worry about it all that much. And by our leadership, I mean both in Moscow and here in Washington. Um, there was a lot of concern among members of our group that this belief that crises could be managed meant uh, less fear of conflict and a certain amount of brinksmanship. This is compounded by a tendency to talk past each other, not understand each other's signaling. Um, we also noted the importance of these signals in these signals of declaratory policies that are clear, that amb ambiguity is often seen as uh, beneficial, but it also has its costs. And finally, um, of course, cyber and other emerging concerns and technologies make this more complicated. It's hard to view them in isolation. And the ways that they make them, these things more complicated, it's more how they play in with other factors. We also tried to look to see if um, the historical experience provided any models, any lessons for how to move forward. And really what we took from looking at the historical experience was that if everybody wants it, the solutions will be found. Um, we also found that having good channels of communication in place really improved the signaling, really improved the ability to um, back away from uh, crisis situations. But there's very little appetite to put these things in place when there isn't a clear sense of a need for them. 
Finally, one of the things we found was that most of our models came from the conventional conflict world. And we weren't limiting our interest in crisis management to the, um, the nuclear world by any stretch of the imagination. But we did think that there was a difference in the sense that built into crisis management techniques in the conventional space is this understanding that accidents are going to happen. And then you've got to sort through that. Um, there's not a lot of room for accidents to happen in the nuclear world. Finally, um, there was consensus around the table that although the folks around the table were big fans of arms control, uh, we did not think that that extended to our governments. Um, we also felt that resolution of the INF Treaty was going to be crucial to progress. We talked a bit about new and alternative models to bilateral arms control, but did not find clear ways to operationalize those. Um, and finally, we did think that for in the confidence building context, unilateral and bilateral statements could be useful. So that's sort of the bottom line up front. I'll go through this in more detail as, uh, as we talk through the slides. Oh, that was the wrong way. Ah. Okay, what did we do? So we started this last summer. Um, Sharon led the first phase, I led the second. Um, and what we did was we asked people both to write things and to get together and talk about them. So we commissioned papers and we um, brought together the group for two sets of discussions. The group wasn't entirely the same each time because we adapted. Um, we built, so the whole idea was built on previous track twos, which Sharon uh, was involved with in a leadership role, which identified that there was a crisis stability uh, gap, that this was something that people wanted to think um, more about. And we recruited both folks who'd been doing this for a long time and people who we thought were doing interesting work that maybe had received a little less attention. Um, our first workshop was in Vienna last October. Uh, we did the usual conversations. We also did some scenario-based analysis where we talked through how we thought our governments might respond to some specific crises, um, scenarios. And then we adjusted our plans for the second workshop as well as the participant list for it based on what we learned in the first workshop such that we um, focused on deconflictions of military operations in peace and wartime to find out what we can learn from those experiences. Um, we talked about um, how we can manage uh, nuclear-related and new weapons and technologies. And instead of trying to bring cyber out as its own topic, we tried to thread it through the conversation uh, in the second workshop. Um, so our participants represented a wide range of folks. Uh, from universities, research institutes, private sector. We uh, had, um, on the US side, more folks from the US government. Um, this was um, funded by the PASC program, um, at, uh, which is um, a, administered by the United States Air Force Academy uh, and uh, comes from uh, DITRA, the Defense Threat Reduction Agency. The idea is to look for innovative solutions, technological, um, through dialogue, and so forth. So we were able, in part through the support of DITRA and the National Defense University, to bring a little bit more um, uh, in the way of uh, folks representing the US government to the table on the American side than we were able to do on the Russian side. So going through the conclusions in a bit more detail, um, the risk management uh, framework gap. Um, this notion that provocation can be helpful, um, that ambiguity is useful, 
seems to be on the rise in the Kremlin and potentially also parts of our own government. Um, we found in talking about this that people around the table were not convinced that our leaderships were as frightened of the prospect of nuclear war as their predecessors might have been, uh, which made them a little bit more likely to take risks. Um, now, our scenario exercises indicated that it's really hard to go from zero to nuclear war. Uh, that in a peacetime uh, situation, a crisis is going to fail safe. People are not going to think, oh my god, they're launching nuclear weapons, even if you've got indicators from early warning that they are. If there's no tension, if things are otherwise pretty good, if you don't have a reason to think that's going to happen, cooler heads will prevail. Um, the problem is that we're not so sure that happens if you're if, you're, if it's a secondary crisis, right? If you already have a conflict, if you've had um, a mounting set of activities and one or the other side has reason to think that the other might be interested in preemptive actions, that's where you get into a place where managing crisis becomes um, much harder. Uh, we found also that the Americans saw this sort of thing emerging from a Baltic scenario, whereas the Russians saw this sort of thing emerging most likely from a Ukraine scenario. Uh, we can take comfort in that since we both uh, think that the war is going to happen in a completely different place, so perhaps that means there won't be the war. But um, it's also, uh, you know, one of us could also be right. Um, I think the challenge is nicely encapsulated by this note here at the bottom that we've gone away from a place where there are rules and arrangements and a belief that you need them. Um, and there is a lot of distrust and belief that the other side is actively trying to destabilize the situation. Okay. We also found that when you talk about some of the things that are um, emerging in this context, uh, they're emerging without a clear sense of what the thresholds are. Um, so cyber is a great example of this, right? Because a cyber threat, first of all, what do we mean by cyber threat? Do we mean an attack on military systems through electronic means? Do we mean uh, hacking of uh, servers of a political party and the release of that information? Do we mean the attack on banking? Do we mean the attack on electrical grids? All of these things fall into the cyber equation and nobody knows for sure which of these are seen as what. What's an act of war? What's an act of annoyance? Nope, it's also very hard to tell who did it and why and under whose authority. Um, you have the danger that somebody else could, a third party could try to um, inject false information and make this all even more complicated. Uh, we also found it interesting that, uh, you know, we think of this in the cyber context, which is very high tech, but some of the same problems are presented by the increasing use of private military contractors, uh, where you also have the, okay, what's the threshold? What's the threat? What's the chain of command? Who, whose responsibility is it? Who do you respond to? Um, we also uh, had a lot of concern about space-based assets. And we talked a good bit about uh, nuclear doctrines and how we understand each other's written and unwritten and perceived uh, theories on the use of nuclear weapons. Uh, Americans were, not all Americans around the table, but some of the Americans were pretty well convinced that Russia's uh, threshold for the use of nuclear weapons in a conflict was lower uh, than uh, A, it should be, and B, than stated Russian doctrine says it is. 
Uh, Russians, particularly after the release of America's nuclear posture review, um, accused the United States of the same. Uh, I mean, I, I would say from this, I think one of the important takeaways is that we are interpreting the way that the other country thinks about, talks about its nuclear weapons as dangerous and destabilizing. So we wanted to look at lessons of the past. The specific um, past experiences we turned to were the incidents at Sea Talks from the 70s um, and the Syria conflict. And what we came out of, so you know, a, a peaceful but dangerous military incidents in peacetime for Inksi and uh, dangerous military incidents in wartime for Syria. We found that when, for both sides, when you needed it, things did not get politicized. Um, routine and redundancy, very important to make sure that messages can be sent and received. But nobody wants to set those things up for the sake of setting them up. Um, and then the point uh, I made earlier that accidents will happen. And a lot of this incidents at sea, the Syria deconfliction uh, mechanisms were set up so that we have ways to respond to the accidents, which is a terrific and useful lesson for the conventional realm. It is less of a useful lesson for the nuclear realm because you don't want to wait until there's been an accident. So turning to the nuclear realm, um, I doubt this is a surprise to anybody here. Uh, we found, we agreed that the current nuclear framework is in trouble. Um, we were all fans. We could come up with a whole list of things we would like to have agreements on. Uh, but we did not think that that was uh, something there was an appetite for uh, amongst our leadership. It's nice to try to think out of the box, uh, and we certainly encourage that. We were not very successful in coming up with ways to transfer the experience of uh, the Iran deal or uh, other creative approaches uh, to this realm. On the other hand, we would not um, close off out the possibility that more people with more time, even perhaps us with more time, could do more. Um, we did conclude, um, for the most part, and of course, you know, I can't speak for everybody in the group. And, um, some folks are here, so they can respond, and not just the ones uh, on the podium, that um, if arms control has a future, it can't just focus on strategic systems or even just on strategic defenses, uh, where it has in the past. That these new things that are emerging need to be part of the discussion. That, of course, raises the question of how do you expand it beyond Russia and the United States, because an agreement that limits American and Russian hypersonic capabilities, but not Chinese or French ones, seems like a recipe for uh, bad national security. So how do we move forward on this? Um, so the way we move forward, we, we felt, at least for the time being, is think big but work small, at least for the time being. So joint early warning concepts, which have been around for a long time. This, you know, we, we, one of our findings was that both the INF Treaty and the Iran deal needed to be preserved. Um, it's still here, you know, because that was one of our findings. Um, I'll, I'll leave that there. Um, multilateralism is going to be necessary over time, so starting to think about ways to do that uh, now is important. And we did think that statements um, might be helpful both in clarifying doctrine and in um, sending more signals uh, that were not um, on either side crazed destabilizing warmongers uh, looking to uh, have a nice, short, successful nuclear war. Um, kind of along the lines of 
things that we used, used to be said about how nuclear wars cannot be won and should not be fought um, might be helpful coming out of the lips of our, our leaders. We also felt that in the atmosphere of um, increased risk tolerance, talking about this stuff is important. Um, track two dialogues like our own, uh, track 1.5 dialogues, which involve more government officials from both sides are helpful ways to do this. Uh, more expert working groups that can dig deep into the specifics of technologies, doctrines, and so forth. And we felt that um, if we're trying to build mutual understanding, Scenario simulations, particularly where you ask people to play different roles, can be very helpful in understanding just how the other guy thinks about these issues. So, oh, I am having trouble with this slide thing. Um, so, the, this is the uh, same slide again. I just told you all of this. You can uh, look at it and we can discuss it some more. Um, all of these products are available on the website. I think copies of the final report were available when you checked in or back here. Um, you can also read all of the discussion papers uh, that were presented, pre prepared for this, and they're quite good, and I commend them to you. Um, in closing, just big thanks to the past program at the U.S. Air Force Academy and to DITRA for supporting this work. Um, I think it was very important. And now I'm going to turn the floor over to Andrei first to give the Russian perspective, and then Sharon to bring it all together and uh, tell us what, you know, what isn't in the slides, but we should still be learning. Okay. I'm going to just put this down. I don't know what to do with it. Sure. So good morning, everyone. Um, I would like to thank CSAS, Sharon, Olga for organizing this working group and doing this amazing and important job. Um, potential for military crisis between Russia and United States uh, is currently overshadowed by everything else which is happening, by Iran, the future of Iran deal, by the DPRK negotiations. But it's still very real, and it's frankly very frightening. Um, I would start with a disclaimer that um, I'm speaking here in my think tank capacity. I do not represent uh, the Diplomatic Academy or the Russian Foreign Ministry. Uh, with that said, I, I would say the discussion on um, crisis stability uh, may be even more important for Russia than for the United States uh, because the very concept is uh, overall less prominent in Russia. Uh, Moscow believes in deterring wars from happening or fighting wars once they started, but less so in managing escalation and confrontation. And there are at least three uh, motives for that. First, Russia traditionally didn't believe in wars starting by mistake. Uh, Russia believes that wars start by decisions of state to start one, and those decisions can be deterred or preempted. Uh, and some experts argue that the reason was a formative experience of the Second World War, uh, which had profound impact on all further uh, Soviet strategy. Uh, and the Second World War for the Soviet Union started not with the sleepwalking, not with misunderstandings, but with a blunt attack by Germany. And uh, actually, it was tactically unexpected precisely because Russia was trying to figure out how to avoid any uh, provocations and it woke up to a uh, German attack. Uh, the second point is that 
Russia traditionally, at least the, the bigger part of the Russian nuclear history, was very pessimistic about nuclear escalation control. Uh, so the idea was that nuclear war would escalate um, quickly, so Russia prepared for deterrence or prepared for war, war fighting, not really um, things in between. And uh, you can see this from a lot of sources, but there is a, a very good collection of interviews made by John Hines and his team uh, with uh, top um, Soviet military officials in 89-94. And uh, from those interviews, we can see that Soviet Union expected a nuclear war to escalate to strategic level in a matter of hours or days as maximum. So um, Soviet Union relied on deterrence to prevent nuclear war. It also had conventional superiority in, in Europe, so it wasn't that much interested in uh, limited um, exchanges. Uh, but no things like escalation letters or Hermann Kahn, you know, writings was, was present in Soviet Union. Uh, the Sokolovsky Doctrine, so-called Sokolovsky Doctrine, named after the Chief of General Staff, was all-out uh, nuclear attack, either as a preemptive attack or as a second strike, but uh, unlike U.S. attempts to come up with limited options, that was Soviet Union view. Uh, and that, that's actually one of the reasons why I don't believe that uh, this concept of escalate to de-escalate really holds up, uh, because Russia never believes that you can manage a, a nuclear conflict. And the third is uh, that Russia doesn't like uh, the concept of great powers war being more manageable, uh, because if the war is more manageable, then it's maybe seen more as an acceptable. If it's seen as more than acceptable, then it's more likely to be fought. And it is not only, uh, you know, in nuclear realm, the same thing holds for uh, things that Olga mentioned uh, about cyber and about uh, space. So um, you probably heard a lot of times, uh, if you're following, that President Putin and other senior Russian officials were saying, um, you know, you don't, you don't start wars uh, between nuclear powers because they can escalate. Uh, so part of it could have, you know, be part of the deterrence effect, maybe some, some brickmanship, but part of it is of consistent Russian trend, which is uh, you do not regulate space war, you do not regulate cyber war, because if you start regulating them, and this is something which West was, is seen in Russia as eager to doing, with Tallinn Manual for, for Rules of Conduct in Cyberspace, with EU Code of Conduct for Outer Space, when you sort of try to come up with uh, framing possible war, uh, then you're legitimizing war, you're making war, war happening, in fact. So um, it, it's probably not a good idea to, to discuss with Russia how do you fight a limited nuclear war, because Russia would see it like as a, a pretext to starting one. Uh, so in this sense, a case study we discussed a lot in the working group, the conflict management in Syria, could be really an outlier, uh, and it's very effective, it is really effective, uh, because it's very limited. Everybody knows it's other force structure, red lines, to some extent goals, 
and stakes for the both parties are relatively low. Syria is not a key issue neither for Russia nor for the United States, at least in a sense which is currently going. Uh, so it could be more of not to shoot, shoot each other by mistake um, than to evade a war, because frankly everybody understands that nobody wants a war, nobody is planning a war, so we just make sure not, our guys are not dead with no apparent reason. Um, and this was also discussed extensively in the working group. Uh, if there is no crisis, a one-off dangerous event would not trigger dangerous escalation. And we've actually seen that with this, uh, Turkey taking down Russian fighter plane. However, again, as uh, Ola mentioned, this will change dramatically if two countries are locked down in a crisis or if there is a wider dynamics which could be interpreted as one side acting deliberately against the other, which is actually what was happening in 2014 when Russia was seeing the events in Ukraine as a deliberate Western um, uh, things happening. So in that context, things would otherwise be seen as you know a coincidence or whatever could have been seen as you know bigger uh, part of this bigger picture. And you don't re you really don't want to to have uh, conflict between Russia and United States to escalate because even a small conventional conflict could get out of hands really quickly uh, because of all sort of entanglements there currently are uh, between nuclear and conventional systems and facilities. You can think about early warning systems, which are often dual purpose. They both for conventional and nuclear purposes, or even the simplest things as air bases because in Russia, some air bases host both uh, conventional and uh, nuclear-capable aircraft. So conventional attack or something which is seen as conventional attack for one party could be seen as trying to take out nuclear forces by other party. And there is actually a very good report on this issue edited by um, academician Alexei Arbatov. If you want to look deeper in this. Uh, and precisely because Russia does not believe that much in inadvertent escalation and is very into this pattern recognition agency seeking, if things start going wrong, it might believe that it, this is a part of U.S. plan. This is something that U.S. is, is doing deliberately against Russia. And I think to a certain extent this is holds up uh, vice versa because you know, if U.S. military and civilian leadership believes even a fraction of things that, you know, are ascribed to Russian hybrid warfare, then people would see, you know, Russia playing those 3D chess uh, in everywhere instead of, you know, mistakes and coincidences. And if you, you know, start from that premise, you can, you can go really far. So, um, in no specific order, a couple of things, uh, some of which we discussed uh, during the working group, some of which I think are important to highlight of what, what need to be done, what could be done. So, I mean, it's obvious to say that um, we need arms control, and we are way too accustomed to living with the knowledge about each other's force structure. And frankly, if you don't have that, you, you would totally see new uh, missile gaps and windows of vulnerability when we have like very rich history between Russia and United States misreading, misinterpreting, misunderstanding each other. So you would have that. 
Um, so again, as I've been telling to anybody in the West who would listen, uh, Russia is uh, willing to have arms control negotiations, and um, there is an interest uh, in Russia at the highest level to do so. But again, only if there is a serious commitment from U.S. side, if it's seen as you know as a decision to go for arms control, uh, if we see it as you know half you know, prepared attempt, it's, it's probably not going to work. And the latest example of uh, this was the uh, cybersecurity negotiations which were planned to be held in uh, Geneva in the late February, uh, where it was agreed, and when Russian delegation arrived, U.S. delegation didn't, and they said this is just too sensitive, we're we not, you know, discussing this, unfortunately. So there was a big backlash from Russia on that point. Uh, so there is one thing. Second, again, it was highlighted. It's, it's, it's you know, not a rocket science. We need military-to-military -military contacts. We have very few of those, mainly limited to Syria. And uh, you know, people have to know each other because when there is a crisis, it's not the red line which works. It's not the technical capability which is you know the most important thing. It's people to people. Because frankly, there is no problem of establishing any contact with anybody, you know, with current technologies. You know, you can pick up a phone in White House and you can say, connect me to whoever you want in, in the Russian, you know, government and they'll do it. It's no problem. The problem is that if you don't know the person who's on the other side of the phone line, then it would be probably not, not too much of the use because, you know, you just, you just don't know if he's lying, if he's, he's not in the loop or whatever. So even uh, for that reason, serious arms control negotiations, which involve military, as they always do, uh, would be a great help, even if you do not have this treaty, which is elusive, complicated, whatever. People will have to know each other. We do not have arms control negotiations for the last seven, eight years. None. Um, again, you know, we need to discuss our force postures. We need to discuss them more and more. We are discussing them in academia. We have to do it even more and maybe try to bring in some people from the government because what is happening now, people are just extrapolating based on, you know, on estimating capabilities. If you estimate capabilities and you make your worst case projections, you know, that's not really helpful because then we have those things escalate or de-escalate from the U.S. side. And on the Russian side, there is this uh, overarching theory that the United States might uh, launch a conventional uh, high-precision campaign against Russia to take out Russian nuclear forces. You know, does the U.S. planning is do it? I haven't seen any, you know, indications. Can the U.S. technically do that? Yeah, probably it can. It will be probably stupid and suicidal, but I mean, it can. There is a technical capability there. So if we don't have contact, if we don't have understanding, the only things the militaries would do it would be like, what, what's the worst case scenario? And uh, the last probably point is that we really need to sort out the communication problem uh, between our countries, and it's well. To the, Clearest example is the Russian President uh, Vladimir Putin's speech on March 1, 2018, in address to the parliament and his subsequent interview to NBC. Um, you know, this nuclear uh, parading of nuclear things and um, 
the video with missiles hitting Florida. I know from certain uh, sources that uh, this was an invitation for a dialogue. This was an invitation for the West to come to the negotiation table. Everything which I get from my Western colleagues is that it wasn't seen as a negotiating. It was seen <laughs> as a threat. And uh, it was, you know, there was some damage control at least uh, trying to be made by the Kremlin. Uh, but, you know, it was unsuccessful communication. And uh, I wouldn't even get into US communication and signaling for the last year and a half. Um, that is uh, something I guess we have to figure out inside our respective countries. I don't think that there is a bilateral way to, to address this, but uh, you know, maybe we, to the extent we can, we should push for that inside our countries because you know, we are misreading each other's signals. Even in the peacetime, even when we don't have a crisis, so imagine what would happen if we have a crisis. Uh, so I would conclude with, um, I don't know, uh, a statement. Um, I'm still in favor of the summit uh, between President Trump and President Putin, which is, you know, on and off all the time. Um, I'm more and more a lonely voice in uh, Russian expert community because people believe that costs will outweigh the benefits and uh, believe that you know, Russian um, issue is so toxic that Trump wouldn't be able to do anything anyway. So the only deliverable from such a summit would be worsening of relations, not the increase uh, in the relations. But I think that we really need to, to kickstart some of the things I, I talked about and this would not happen without a clear signal from the top. Because the bureaucracy is, is not moving in that direction. There is no will for arms control negotiations with Russia. There is no will for any change of status quo with Russia. So um, with that said, uh, our you know, situation is pretty dire if our last resort is a summit between uh, President Putin and President Trump. But um, here we are. Um, thank you. Okay, thank you, Andre. On that note, over to Sharon. Summits, mm -hmm. summits seem to be the uh, flavor of the week. So um, Here you go. after yeah. the vastly successful summit uh, yesterday, um, who What's knows what could happen? I um, I don't have any prepared marks. I'm going to kind of respond to <coughs> uh, both what Olya and Andre have said. But it's funny that you should mention that the video that President Putin showed. Um, in March, I think it was, was an invitation to dialogue. Because if some of you may have watched the video that President Trump showed to Kim Jong-un, um, and it struck me that it, it kind of reminded me of the Putin video. <laughs> and, and in fact, I think Trump meant it to be a video, sort of an invitation <laughs> to dialogue with Kim Jong-un. So maybe we have more convergence, at least in sort of uh, the way our leaders um, are uh, talking to other people. Um, I'm gonna <laughs> you never know. I'm, I'm optimistic. I don't think I've, my, my, uh, I've been involved in nonproliferation and arms control for 30 plus years, and you don't do that unless you have a little bit of optimism at the bottom. Um, I'd like to make a few points, and one is just to put this dialogue in a little bit of context. We started more than five years ago 
with our first dialogue that was supposed to look at um, kind of do, do a track to to look at solutions for tactical negotiating on tactical nuclear weapons. So this was back in 2013. And then of course some events happened in 2014 and we said, well obviously we can't talk to the Russians even on a track two uh, level about that. We're not gonna go anywhere on arms control negotiations. So let's talk, uh, let's shift this a little bit and talk about strategic stability. I, I just wanna, you know, pull this thread a little bit. So you go from arms control to strategic stability. We have our dialogues and then suddenly it's, well, strategic stability is really important, but we have reached a point where we really need to talk about crisis stability. And then we've kind of come full circle back to arms control saying, you know, we still need those mechanisms. And the reason why I think we need those mechanisms is not just for crisis stability, but to build those relationships on a lot of different levels. So one of the key takeaways, and Olya has, and Andre have, have already mentioned this, but the ability for not just the top leaders at the summit, but technical folks, military to military, to have those conversations, to have those relationships so that when something goes wrong, you can pick up the phone or text or you know whatever mechanism you choose to get some clarification because even though we are we are bombarded by information across so many different platforms um, but it's still not clear sometimes sometimes you really just need somebody who who you trust um, so and I think even though the prospects for arms control between the US and Russia um, seem pretty dim uh, at the moment um, I think there's still quite a lot of value in continuing to press to see if there are any openings. Which leads me to a couple other points. Um, U.S. credibility at this point in time, in my view, um, is fairly low uh, in terms of our ability and our leadership's ability to stick to agreements. You can look at Iran, you can look at G7 statements, you can look at any variety of things. Um, and so that, I think, puts us in a difficult position, uh, whether we are simply doing executive agreements or treaty, treaties actually might um, provide a little more stability. On the other hand, I think the recent summit this week with the DPRK shows, whether you're comfortable with this or not, um, that President Trump, Trump is pretty open to turning everything upside down. Um, and I think it really remains to be seen whether the effort with North Korea is going to be successful from the point of, the, the point of view of really reducing nuclear risks. I'm gonna be agnostic there. Good things could happen, I still believe. Um, and that ability to turn things on its head, to me, suggests that you know, Trump could be, in a positive way, open to, when you look at strategic, a strategic dialogue with Russia, to including those, to widening the aperture, right? 
um, to include other topics now, right? So for a long time, Russia has said, well, you know, we can't just talk about nuclear weapons. We have to talk about missile defenses and all these things. The, the traditional arms control community, at least in the United States, has said, no, we're going to, you know, it's going to be here. We have our silos. We're comfortable with this. You know, there's no real reason for us to, you know, venture into hypersonics, you know, when we have a lead and all of that. And so I would just throw out the idea that, I, I don't know, maybe there's some greater flexibility there. Um, I don't know whether <laughs> President Trump's uh, offhand comment, I don't know if it was more than that, about bringing Russia back into the fold, you know, to G8 uh, means anything at all, whether it's implementable, whether our allies are ever going to talk to us ever again, um, on a variety of different topics. But, you know, I do think that you know, we're, we're actually living the Chinese curse, may you live in interesting times. Um, there have to be um, some opportunities there. I believe. So um, let me see if there were any other. Uh, oh, I, I did want to make one specific point about INCSI, the uh, Incidents at Sea Agreement, because in our first dialogue that we held uh, last year in Vienna, we were really looking for, you know, are there any examples where we've done well uh, with the Russians in terms of um, uh, preventing escalation. And so INCSI was a, a very good agreement. And, and so we had, a, uh, I would say, one of the preeminent experts, a Navy commander or captain, um, teaches at the Naval War College, um, who's done some research into this. And the interesting thing about INCSI, we were talking about, can we, can we update it? Do we need to update it? Do we, you know, either to, to include new technology? Um, but the interesting thing that came out of her kind of exposition of that agreement was that it was only made possible because Brezhnev really wanted a summit. He really wanted kind mm -hmm. of a deliverable. And that was the agreement that um, was worked in advance um, of some high-level meetings. Um, and it has, for a variety of reasons, because it's a, I think it's an eminently practical mm -hmm. document, uh, there were some around the table who said, well, these are all, they're all Navy guys, right? They're, they have a culture. They have a common um, kind of way of looking at things. That has also helped uh, the implementation of that agreement. Um, and so while we didn't look at INCSI as, you know, we, we could replicate it elsewhere, um, I think it, it points back to the, the um, conclusion that there are still pockets of people, whether or not our top leaders get together, professionals who like dealing with each other, who are, if they are given the opportunity, will deal with each other in a very professional way. And that can have a, a kind of dampening effect on crisis escalation. So I'll leave my remarks there. Thank you. Um, any responses? Do we want to? I mean, one thing I think that's interesting, I think, thank you for making the point about incidents at sea. I mean, it has been expanded and built upon. There's a dangerous military incidents agreement. There's the uh, arrangement that was uh, signed between the United States and China that's based on that. 
which took a while to negotiate. And it was a confluence of things, right? That the Soviets wanted a summit, but also the incidents have escalated to the point that there was loss of life, that you know, people, it, it was in some ways very similar to what you see today, that people were having a nice time messing with each other. Um, and it was getting dangerous. But it had to get pretty dangerous, and you had to have a commitment to sit down and talk before anybody was willing to do anything about it. But I, in terms of an atmosphere of brinksmanship, at least in that context, you certainly had that, and that certainly echoed today. Yeah. And if I, if I may, I would just, you know, just continue this line. To a certain extent, the, the INF Treaty was also coming up from, from a similar, uh, you know, set of circumstances. It was dangerous that the missiles were destabilizing, but also at some point Reagan really, you know, and Gorbachev really wanted to have a summit to, like, for different reasons, but it all came up together and we had this, you know, this treaty signed which is still sort of alive <laughs> and we might have it being alive for a while. It needs some help. <laughs> it possibly needs a summit <laughs> to save it. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna turn the floor over to our audience and see what questions you have. Uh, please do, um, please raise your hand, please wait for the microphone, please identify yourself, and please do make it a question. That. I frightened you with that? <laughs> please, um, and, and please wait, please wait for the microphone. I'm Marsha McGraw-Olive, an adjunct professor at SAIS, and formerly, I'm dating myself, the Soviet Non-Proliferation Officer at ACTA. And that leads me to the question, taking from both of your points, there are areas where this joint work together, as it did for us in the 70s, uh, enable us to take on commonly perceived threats. I'm a dinosaur arms controller, I appreciate that, but if we were to update it along the lines of cyber, which might, because Trump is enthusiastic about putting his mark on something, can you perceive that maybe this February incident was due to just the timing in the administration, that things may have changed, or do you think that there is any way that this may be good brought forward in an arms control broadening sense, bringing in cyber at the technical level. In other words, do we have, could, could, is there scope to try it again? Or do you think the Russians would be cold to that idea, given the changes that we've seen, as you just mentioned, with Trump's wrecking ball approach, maybe, or wider lens, however you want to look at it? Sorry, long question. I mean, I my thought on cyber agreements is uh, the definitional questions are really a big problem. What, what are you agreeing on? And I think there are two families of agreements that we might be thinking about. One is about what it is and is not okay to target by what means in a military sense. The other is what it is and is not okay to do in somebody else's domestic politics, which includes a cyber component, but is really about political interference. And I think both of these things need to be addressed. They don't have to be addressed together, but there's a certain amount of overlap. But I think there's a, a tendency to conflate these when we talk about cyber, and I think it's really helpful to break them out. 
I would totally agree with what Olya said. Uh, when Russia talks about cybersecurity, what Russia normally means is the protection of critical infrastructure. Like Natanz, for example, you don't use cyber you know, weapons to attack each other. And that's, that's probably more of arms control thing which you can approach from arms control view. There are a lot of you know, nuances and a lot of problems is how do you verify anything, how do you um, make sure that's wh who's, who's uh, the perpetrator. But that's at least you know, you, you know what to do with that. And there might also be even a benefit in coming up with uh, unilateral statements that we are not attacking each other, this and this and this and this, even if it's not verifiable, if it's not you know, the part of a you know, real arms control deal, that has a lot of merit in itself. Uh, but uh, yeah, Russia does not mean Facebook ads or you know commentaries on social media as a part of cyber um, thing. And also, it's it, it's it's a big and complicated question, which United States has probably to decide for itself. Uh, but um, you know, regulation of social media in a way that will make it probably more protected. To to you know, any kind of trying to influence each other. It's, it's not a Russian issue, any country can do that. Like Facebook permits buying ads for, for everybody. So I guess the United States would want to start with what, what it really can do by itself, what it wants from other parties, and then, then go from there. Um, generally, I don't think that at current moment it's really possible to come up with any meaningful dialogue about Russia and cyber. We've seen this reaction uh, with this particular meeting, but uh, we also can remember that at the first, it was the first talk with President Putin over the phone. President Trump says something like, we're going to establish a cyber working group. And there was like a huge backlash and that's, it was buried at the beginning because putting cyber and Russia together, it's almost anathema in, in the United States. Those things do not come together very well. So maybe we really need some sort of cooling down if the midterm elections go well. There is no you know, uh, interference. So I suspect that whatever happens, one of the sides would say that there was interference irrespectively of what really happened, which, which could be a big problem. But if the midterms come relatively well and there is no, no, no problems in that sphere, maybe that would be a better time to, to do that. Sure. I don't have any good answers for you. <laughs> um, it, it's not just, obviously, it's not just a U.S.-Russia issue. Um, and it's curious whether you could do something on a broader scale. I mean, so the, the, the advantage lies, it, it, it's kind of a tool of asymmetric warfare in a lot of ways. And so there are a lot of actors out there, including, of course, North Korea, um, that would be hard to corral. But uh, maybe there's a code of conduct, I don't, you know. Uh, <laughs> codes of conduct, best practices. Uh, um, yeah. The, the code, code of conduct, as I said, are tricky. Because, you know, what, what Russia sees it is like, if you start saying, like, you, look, you can target this, but you cannot target that, but that, that means you can target it. Right. So this is the, the non-starter. That which is not prohibited is uh, permitted. 
yeah, and I, I guess the United States wouldn't like that as well. So really have to, you know, I guess at this point, unilateral statements are very, very good. No, but I, I also think um, for both Russia and the United States, it's a valuable exercise to try to think through what the th our thresholds really are. Uh, and that doesn't have to be publicized. It's just a useful thing to think through before you start having too many of these conversations of do, what do we worry about? Do we worry about weapon-like effects? Do we worry about other sorts of disruptions which aren't weapon-like but are disruptive? Um, you know, basically, do people have to die, or does it is it okay if it's just a really huge hassle to get through your day? I mean, Russia effectively cyber attacked itself a few weeks ago when they tried to shut down Telegram and ended up shutting down the internet. Um, if a foreign power had done that to Russia, right? What would that have been an act of war? What would that be, and how do you respond to that sort of thing? And I think that as nations, we need and as communities, we need to think through um, what our thresholds really are. Also recognizing that those thresholds will be changing and shifting mm -hmm. and evolving, and that that for publics, for citizens, the thresholds are different across countries, right? So in a place like the U.S., you know, if you do something to people's cell phones, you have riots. Um, right. I don't know. The Russians didn't riot. The Russians just all switched to Telegram because it was well, the, the only thing that still works. So I'm reminded of you know uh, when I was in North Korea a few years ago, the lights went out in the middle of a big I was at the circus, something that the North Koreans like to take you to, and there was absolute silence because they were completely comfortable with the lights going out for a couple minutes. That is what they deal with. The lights go out. The electricity goes out. In advanced countries, that's completely un, not unthinkable, well, but you know our tolerance is much different. So anyway, I just throw that out as a complicating factor. You, you can, yeah. even if you tried to set those thresholds, right? Though every time it snows, right, a big chunk of the American Northeast stops functioning, um, <laughs> and that, that includes places like you know Boston, where you think they be used to it. I, I kind of wonder how we'd know if our electrical grid was attacked if it happened <laughs> you know, during the winter. Yeah. Okay, I would, I'll take another um, question. Which is silent audience. Hello, John Zebri from the DOD. I was kind of curious if you could comment more on, you were talking about how um, Russia kind of looks at the worst case scenario, maybe not realistic scenarios. I was seeing if you could comment kind of more on that. Sure. So one of the um, cases I was presenting is this aerospace uh, warfare concept, which is very throughout all of the Russian military um, writings. And uh, the basic idea is that Russia should be prepared to fight off the um, something like Yugoslavia or Iraq on steroids uh, when the uh, United States are launching barrages of cruise missiles targeting uh, Russian air defenses and then taking out its nuclear forces and then uh, what have you. So uh, there is this fear that uh, United States would want to take out Russian nuclear force in the first strike. Uh, and uh, a lot of the things which uh, Russia's, Russians are worried is, for example, the missile defense. Uh, are precisely the part of this thinking that because uh, you know you start this first strike, uh, you take out 90% and then missile defense absorbs uh, 
remaining 10%. So, you know, it all fits in one, one big picture. Um, I mean, it's, it's prompted uh, a development of Russian uh, conventional capabilities, and Russia is really invested into that currently uh, with sea-launched cruise missiles, air-launched cruise missiles, uh, different generations of uh, air-launched cruise missiles, because that's again something which is you know which Russia does. If if you see that United States has an advantage in something, you you try to replicate that. You also you also need that, and uh, there's also a big investment in um, air defenses. It's uh, which pays off because C four hundred air uh, defense system is currently being sold to everybody in the world. Turkey is the less last and most problematic customer. Uh, for the West, now but now we have S five hundred, the next generation system, which you know it's at some points would be able to intercept even uh, ballistic missiles, probably not ICBMs, but some sorts of ballistic missiles. So those things go hand in hand. Uh, but again, in the you know underlying thing, in this belief that United States might try to launch a conventional military attack against Russia. I do not see in any US military writings or any scenarios or any war games anything that would indicate that. But you cannot prove negative, right? So if you started like what well, what can they do with all those powers and you know, here we go. Well when we talk to like people in, in the government, I would say like look, uh, United States didn't want to attack DPRK. They didn't want to so they didn't believe that combination of their precision strike systems and missile defense would take out DPRK, which is small, which has like very few nuclear weapons. So why would you think that they would try to do something with Russia, which has thousands of nuclear weapons on high alert, which is, you know, it's a crazy little bit. Uh, but still, you know, there is this feeling that something might happen over there. So there's that. Other? Hi, my name is uh, Ty Miller. I'm a intern at the Osgood Center for International Studies, and you just mentioned um, you're talking about the um, lack of U.S. credibility right now, and then also the need for like just a non-top level to build um, connections like professionally. Is there anything that people can do at lower levels to continue like build a level of trust between U.S. and Russia for these kind of um, management situations, even though like the current administration is really um, unpredictable? I would say I, I just heard about a, I don't know if you would call it track two, but a military to military effort between STRATCOM and it's kind of been kind of quiet and former strategic rocket forces guys. So there are some, I'm sure there are some efforts of which we are not all entirely aware. Are you talking kind of like civil society type? Yeah. Lower level government. So some of this happens, right? That's the Syria deconfliction mechanism is lower level government, military continuing to do their work. Arms control inspections continue. These things continue. Um, but they are also limited by a policy on the part of the United States that we're not going to start anything new. Yeah. That was actually the policy which was which predates Trump administration. It was the policy put in place by Obama administration. 
I would add uh, one thing which is very interesting about the Stratcom. Uh, there is an you know, ongoing attempt to establish some kind of parliamentary dialogue on the side of uh, U.S., uh, sorry, Russian uh, lower house of parliaments, the Duma and the upper house, the Council of Federation. And um, it seems that there might be some, you know, movement in that part because for the moment, um, at least from what I was hearing from, from the Russian side, that the attempts to establish such contacts were not reciprocated from the U.S. side. That might be changing. Uh, and that would actually probably be a good thing to do irrespective of, of the results because the more you talk normally, the better it is. Mm -hmm. Do you have more on this? Um, <laughs> unfortunately, I think the kind of, um, I don't know if I would call it a dust up, that's kind of a frivolous way of talking about it, but uh, you know, bringing back um, you know, sending home diplomats <laughs> on both sides has, has uh, been, been negative. Um, you know, it gets harder the lower the level of trust is between, um, you know, on an official basis. So I think we just have to keep watching and sort of try to make opportunities where, where we can. Yeah, if I can just jump on, on yeah. what you just said. Uh, there is a really nice quote I really liked, which was said by um, Metrojansky, the director of the Kenyan Institute at the Wilson Center, which was said at the podcast which mm -hmm. Olga co-hosts. Oh, that's a little uh, Russian roulette plug. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which, when he said that currently we are treating our embassies not, you know, in a sense as we used to, as a, you know, instrument for arranging diplomatic relations, but in more a medieval sense when we treated them as hostages. So if you are not satisfied with other countries, you just, you know, you punish the, the hostages, you punish the diplomats. So I was just back in, well, in, in Moscow, I, I talked to some people at the U.S. Embassy, and basically when this was tit for tat expulsion, um, Russian side just expelled all the political section of the U.S. foreign, uh, U.S. Embassy. So it's like a huge problem for the embassy currently because they have to, you know, recreate the, um, uh, you know, the section from scratch. They have some people transferred from other cities, but that's not really, you know, working very well. And uh, to get new people, it takes quite a lot of time because we are currently getting this tit for tat, not giving visas to our respective diplomats or, you know, extending time for that. And so, you know, embassies cannot, you know, do their job because there are just no people there or the people of different sort. So, yeah. So, I would just add to that, you know, on a personal anecdote, I've had trouble recently getting uh, representatives from the Russian embassy to come to very, very mild events, right? I would like to hear a Russian perspective. I have no idea why I'm not getting a response. But it goes back to, um, you know, these treaty mechanisms, right? Olga's absolutely right. We're still doing new start inspections, right? When you have a treaty and you, you have to fulfill the terms of that. Now, of course, that could go south too. But even INF, we're still having, you know, commission. There, there are these mechanisms. And they tend, you know, what you want is mechanisms that do not get politicized. Um, you know, in the past, I, People were, or leader, leadership was a little wary of, you know, 
expelling diplomats <laughs> because you know it's tough. It's tough to do business with another country when you don't have anybody to talk to. Uh, we looks like we moved beyond that, but um, so, so that's why I would you know continue to plug a, put in this plug for let's keep these treaty mechanisms going uh, and you know see if there are common interests in you know creating more. It's going to be tough, but. We need to look to the future. Any other? Okay, well, thank you all for coming, and thank you to Andre and to Sharon for joining me here. Um, and again, thanks for to the US Air Force Academy, the PASC program, and DITRA for supporting this work.